This episode of Lunch Agenda is sponsored by Brian Smith of Compass Real Estate. Brian helped me buy my house five years ago and wanted to support Lunch Agenda just like he supports so many of Washington's greatest causes. I encourage you to check him out at compass.com if you're ready to look at houses in D.C. He is the best, and I'm happy to tell you all about him. Tune into full service radio. Full service radio. Full service. Full service. Full service. Full service radio. Hey everyone, welcome to Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio. We're broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in DC, and I'm your host, Kiko Bourne. Lunch Agenda is a podcast that schools you on parts of the food system that are less often explored than restaurants or celebrity chefs. You can check out past interviews with D.C.-based leaders like Ona Balkis and Michael Twitty, and national food advocates like Mark Bittman, Leah Penniman, and Julia Tertian. All those interviews are waiting for you on your favorite podcast app, and behind-the-scenes info and episode pictures are at kikosfoodnews.com or kikobuff on Instagram. Today, I'm launching a new series called Investing in Food, which will be strengthened by the power of a strong partner on my side. For the next four episodes of this series, I have the pleasure of collaborating with the Bainham Family Foundation. Over the past 50 years, Bainham has worked to improve the quality and availability of resources for children living in poverty to help them thrive. And in recent years, Bainham has, ma- has become a dynamic funder of food-based initiatives in the Washington region, recognizing that access to nourishing food during childhood impacts health and learning outcomes later in life. I asked Bainham to co-produce this series with me because I see them as leaders on engaged food philanthropy, and we're going to be talking about what that looks like. And I thought that Bainham would be able to help me navigate the players and strategies in food funding, both locally and nationally. So here's a preview of what this series will involve. In today's episode, we're going to talk about the who's who in food investing, and we're going to do a kind of like a 101. We'll talk about foundations, venture capitalists, corporations, and everywhere in between, and the differing approaches of these players in the space. Then in the second episode, we'll spotlight inequities that exist in the D.C. area food system and look at how funders are collaborating with both nonprofits and for-profits to fix these systemic gaps. In the third episode, we'll discuss how philanthropic investment is being used to move people from needing emergency food to having agency and opportunity to purchase it themselves. And finally, we'll round out the series with a, with a fourth episode, exploring the idea of food sovereignty, how we can ensure equitable access to food funding, as well as equitable ownership and participation in food ventures. So you may be tuning in to the series because you have a food nonprofit or a food business that's looking for investment, Or you may be tuning in because you've made personal investments in food organizations but are hungry for a further framework through which to consider those investments and want to learn best practices from professionals in the space. For me, I've wanted to do this series for a long time because I see the food investment space 
as a lens or really a crystal ball through which we can see the future of our food system, see where we're going. So today's guests, who I can't wait to bring on to the mic, Eric Kessler of Arabella Advisors, Leela Otis of the Bainham Family Foundation, and Celeste James, who leads Kaiser Permanente's community health philanthropy in the Mid-Atlantic region, will help us understand the different types of food funding that exist in 2019, and will give us a window into how funders make their decisions. But, as always, before I start talking with these Incredible guests. Let me kick things off with just a little bit of Kiko's food news. Headline one for today. A year after reports that Mario Batali sexually assaulted and harassed women, the Bastianich family and Mr. Batali's other partners have ended a 20-year partnership and brought out and bought out his stake in his restaurants. Mr. Batali also is selling his shares in Italy, the fast-growing global chain of luxury Italian supermarkets. Several famous chef and restaurateurs have recently been accused of sexual harassment, but Mr. Batali is the first to surrender all his restaurants. Headline two, further afield, EU member states are leading the fight against plastic pollution. They've just agreed to a new directive that will restrict the use of single-use plastic products, which they estimate make up 85% of beach litter. So in 2021, we can look ahead to European citizens saying goodbye to plastic cutlery, plastic plates, and of course, plastic straws. Beyond the environmental benefits, the directive brings economic savings, which are estimated at $24.9 billion by 2030. And finally, zooming in on local DC news, A D.C. law firm called Veritas announced about a month or two ago, and I've wanted to report on this, that they're willing to waive their attorney fees for any restaurant that's opening east of the river in Ward 7 and 8. Despite a population of close to 160,000 in those wards, there are less than 10 full-service restaurants serving both wards combined. There's no question the Washingtonians living in those communities are hungry for for more options, And I'll be interested to check in on how many businesses take them up on this offer. We're going to take a quick break to share a bit of information about an online tool for food education and job training that was just released by the Bainham Family Foundation. So stay tuned and we'll be right back. Hey, food people. Have you heard about the Food Learning Locator? Brought to you by the Bainham Family Foundation, it's a free online resource for exploring more than 100 food-related education and job training programs across the D.C. metro area. Whether you're looking for job training in the food industry, help growing your garden, or classes on food and nutrition, you can find it on the Food Learning Locator. And if your organization runs food-related programs, you'll want to be featured on this innovative interactive tool. Explore the map and learn more at foodlearninglocator.org. Welcome back, everyone. This is Kiko, and you're still tuned into Lunch Agenda on Full Service Radio. We've just launched into a, a new series about investing in food, and in this first episode, we're going to get Eric Kessler's help taking a look at all kinds of food investors out there, and then zoom in a bit on mission-oriented investing in conversation with Leela Otis and Celeste James. Welcome, Eric, Leela, and Celeste. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. So, Eric, I'm going to start with you. And 
Eric, for those who aren't familiar with him, Eric Kessler founded and has guided Arabella Advisors from a small startup to a company with more than 160 employees that advises on several billion dollars of philanthropic resources annually. Eric helps clients achieve their philanthropic goals and leads the firm's work with those clients who invest to improve our food system. But his interests in the food sector extend beyond Arabella. He created the James Beard Foundation's Chef's Boot Camp for Policy and Change. He co-founded the Chef Action Network and serves as an appointed member of DC's Food Policy Council. So Eric, with all of that experience to inform you and to inform us, can you tell us um, just first about how Arabella is influencing investment in the food system and what you're doing there? Yeah, and thanks for having me, Kiko. Sure. So at Arabella, our clients are philanthropists, foundations, and investors. Um, while the firm works across a broad range of issues, uh, my focus is on our clients that care about food system change. So thinking about a food system that is um, nutritious, sustainable, equitable, and accessible. Um, and we help them on both the philanthropic side and the, and the for-profit investment side. Um, and the two, of course, are very linked together. On the investment side, um, we support about 20 individuals and families who are significant investors in food businesses uh, that, are, uh, th- that are contributing to a better food system. Um, we source a significant pipeline of investment deals. I think right now we're looking at about 150, maybe 200 um, potential investment deals. We run them through pretty deep diligence um, and several screens uh, and ultimately put about 10 deals in front of our clients um, every year that focus on sustainable agriculture, sustainable aquaculture, um, food access, nutrition, and food waste reduction. Um, uh, we mirror that work on the investment side with work on the philanthropy side, where we help many of those same individuals and a number of others um, that are focused on policy advocacy and creating a better food system through building a, a demand for good food and a policy environment that enables a good food supply chain. So just to make sure I understand, on the investment side, you have about 20 private clients. Correct. On the philanthropy side, who are your clients? Um, many of the large institutional foundations that, uh, that care about food um, uh, in our food system, uh, whether it's from a consumer perspective or a labor perspective or a sustainability and climate change perspective, uh, and then a number of private family foundations and individual donors, so um, about 100 in total across the country. Great, great. I'm already learning. I didn't realize that. So can you kind of school us now on like the menu of all the different ways that money is moved around to or from food organizations, like maybe starting with venture capital um, and, and, you know, I'll ask you some guiding questions, but like, what are the key buckets of food investment in 2019? Yeah, I would think about it. It's, it's easiest to sort of follow a company. So an entrepreneur has an idea for a, um, whether it's a a, a tech application that um, supports precision agriculture or a new uh, food product um, that has an interesting supply chain or improves nutrition or even a, a restaurant chain that's focused on food access and, uh, um, uh, 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 and, and giving more people access to better food. So if an entrepreneur is starting a food business, um, at the beginning they're likely to be seeking uh, sort of early stage seed capital. Um, in the food world, that means they, might go to, they will go to friends and family, um, but they might also reach out to 
um, a host of individual investors, family investors, um, uh, foundations who are willing to take a high degree of risk on an early startup and provide uh, uh, seed capital to get something started. That's sort of the proof of concept phase. Um, so they've done that. They've raised a little money. Uh, the business is growing. Um, they would then naturally go and seek out growth capital. So they've proved their concept. They've they're, they're cash flow positive, maybe profitable even, um, and it's time to scale up the business. And they'll go and seek growth capital. They might do that from an institutional investor, um, or even some of those same initial investors who can sort of take them through to the next phase of growth as a business. Um, uh, um, and we'll come back to growth capital because that's an area where actually there's a desperate need for more resources and there's a real gap right now in the sort of um, capital continuum available for entrepreneurs in the good food sector. Um, the next phase would be sort of institutional investors. Um, so a company that's grown and now it's time to really sort of institutionalize. We've heard about um, uh, uh, Beyond Meat would be a good example of a, of a company that has grown significantly alternative protein um, uh, plant-based uh, 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 burger product. Um, uh, and so they now go and raise, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in institutional investors that could come from, you know, traditional large scale um, uh, banks and financial institutions. Um, increasingly, it's coming from big food companies who are setting up their own investment vehicles. Some of the biggest food, food companies in the in the country um, are experimenting in new in new sectors by investing and buying um, uh, uh, companies that have grown to a certain scale. Um, so it's really a continuum. And I would even start before that seed stage by saying that the most critical lead up to investment capital is actually philanthropic capital. Because in all these cases, in virtually every um, food business out there, um, it's it, they're being started because somebody created a demand. And if you dig into it in almost every case, that demand uh, was created uh, in part with philanthropic support. As foundations have um, educated consumers about good food, as foundations have changed policies, creating business opportunities, um, as foundations have um, uh, supported incubators uh, for entrepreneurs who come up with new ideas. And so the, the investment continuum starts with philanthropy, carries, uh, goes to individual and family uh, uh, investments, um, goes into private equity, growth capital. Um, and ultimately institutional capital. And, and that continuum has been built over the last 15 years and really is now just at a place where, we, where there's players at every step of that game. There's still a need in the growth capital phase, um, but that's growing too. And so for the finance dummies in the room, venture capital is which stage of those that you just said? So uh, venture capital could take a lot of forms, but, um, but, but that would be in that sort of growth phase. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and and now the, the lines are blurring. If you talk to a venture capitalist about what they do, they would uh, define it as sort of a wide range in that, in that continuum at this point. Mm -hmm. um, and if you talk to somebody who typically does seed investments, um, like myself, as I personally invest in food companies, I've always focused on some early stage risky deals. I'm now engaging in in, uh, in bigger investments, uh, as are many of our clients. I was going to ask you about your personal investment and how you choose where you put your money, because that might be very different from where you would advise clients or institutions to put their money. I definitely don't follow my own advice. Um, uh, so um, uh, mostly because I think our, our, our clients tend to be more risk adverse. Um, 
and so that's not always the case, but generally the case. And and uh, and for myself, I'm willing to take more risks, uh, bigger risks on deals that have um, potential bigger impact. Um, and so here locally in D.C., I'm thrilled to be um, uh, an investor in um, Dolceza Gelato. Um, uh, I love I love Gelato and I love their product, but I actually uh, more than any of that, I love their supply chain. And I love that they buy from uh, regional farmers, that all their ingredients um, are as organic as possible and regionally sourced. Um, uh, uh, and so typically we're not, typically we're discouraging clients from investing in um, food service companies, restaurants in particular that are, and CPG that are um, uh, you know, super risky. Um, but I like to play around a little uh, in my own portfolio. Is debt at all part of the investment, you know, Landscape that you would that you would highlight here. A- absolutely, um, uh, uh, debt, venture debt, um, equity, um, uh, uh, and, and it's taken on so many different forms now. There's so many different ways to engage PRIs, so foundations making um, uh, uh, investments out of program dollars, um, uh, and so um, uh, you know there, there's so many different forms of investment capital now. Um, that I, to some extent, I, I, I feel for entrepreneurs in the food sector because it can be very tough to navigate. It's, um, it's a relatively opaque world. Um, it's hard to know where to go and who to go to. Um, uh, uh, and, um, and, there's, and, and we know from some work that we just did at Arabella that the level of investment um, uh, going particularly to women investors is paltry compared to um, uh, male invest, ma- sorry, women entrepreneurs, right. paltry compared to uh, male entrepreneurs, um, and so we're working uh, uh, with our clients to um, to uh, have an impact on that. And we haven't done the data analysis, but I am uh, I, 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 I have every reason to believe that the same is the case for um, uh, non-white um, uh, entrepreneurs. I would um, love if you have any data about the the um, you know likelihood of investment in women-led. Businesses in episode four of the series, we're zooming in on that problem a little bit. Um, so, if there's anything that you're ready to yeah, share, yeah, Arabella just released a report that's on our uh, website okay. focused on investment capital and women uh, in women entrepreneurs. Um, uh, um, and there's other. We did that in partnership with J.P. Morgan. There's another, uh, and there's there is research out there. It's not our own about uh, the the low level of investment in um, entrepreneurs of color, which is um, uh, two two communities where they're. Um, we, we have every reason to believe that, that the entrepreneurial ideas in these communities are as good, if not better, um, and the, investment, the access to investment dollars is, is, is much, much lower. And the first step of fixing it is just naming it and being very clear with numbers showing that the extent of the problem. Um, okay, so hold on to this, this seed about um, how it's opaque and difficult as the person sourcing funding to find it. Maybe you might come back to that with your action item later. I don't know. Um, but I do want to ask you before we move on to speaking with Leela and Celeste about the Washington Regional Food Funders that you created. And we'll, we'll follow with Celeste talking about that as well because she leads. She has been at the helm of it for a while. Um, who's involved and what does that group do? So one, uh, um, I'm, I'm pleased to see that we that I did not create it. It actually was created by a group of funders, Celeste among them, um, uh, who came together, and I'll let Celeste uh, uh, speak to it, but, I, uh, but a group of funders who came together recognizing that a lot of shared interest, a lot of shared learning to be done, a lot of value and benefit in, um, uh, in sharing um, uh, what they've seen and what they've learned. 
um, uh, uh, and ways to leverage and be leveraged as a group. Um, uh, I'm, I'm very proud that Arabella plays a role in helping to manage that group and facilitate that group and uh, bring them together around specific deals and opportunities and uh, in learning opportunities. So our role is really a um, sort of behind the scenes um, facilitator. Um, uh, but it is a group now of uh, a, a, a loose affiliation of now about 40 foundations and individual philanthropists and investors who come together with some regularity um, to uh, uh, share what they're hearing, share intelligence, and find ways to work together. Um, and this last year um, produced uh, Chesapeake Food Summit, which was a, a pretty unique gathering of, um, of, uh, of thinkers and doers um, across the region's food system uh, coming together identify, to identify um, uh, gaps in the food system and where more resources are needed. Uh, and stay tuned for the, the, the follow-on summit uh, this year in 2019. So it's, it's great to know that we have two um, founders in the room I didn't realize. So Celeste, I'll follow up with you on kind of how you've guided that group's work and, and where it's going. Um, and I just want to underscore before we move over next to Leela, uh, uh, Eric's point about how not all investment is mission motivated. You know, my show often is focused on mission motivated food work, but to your point about how you wouldn't necessarily advise your clients who want to see certain returns to invest in food service, um, you know, a lot of the investment is going for a certain return. And with mission motivated investment, I assume you you often take on more risk, right? Um, I'd, I'd say often more risk, not necessarily often less return. It it comes down to doing your research and finding good deals. And there's good point. There, and my, my I guess my message is that lots of entrepreneurs, lots of great ideas, lots of opportunity. Um, if anything, there's a shortage of capital available to them. Uh, and um, to find those deals, you've got to do your homework. Um, uh, and it takes time, but they're out there. And that's kind of looping back to your point about how there's a gap of resources in this growth capital bucket. Right. That's exactly right. Right. So I wanna, I do wanna now double click on the mission, inve- the mission investing side. And um, Leela, it would be great if you can help us understand the foundation model of mission investing a little more. Let me first give a, a bit of information about you. Leela Otis is Bainham's Vice President of Programs, where she leads strategy and operations for the Bainham Family Foundation's work in early learning, food security, and faith-based education. She launched Bainham's Food Security Initiative in 2016 after the foundation was granted 263 acres of Virginia farmland from the founder's estate, and she oversees Bainham's program-related investment portfolio, which includes food investments like Oasis Community Partners, which owns Good Food Markets, and 4P Foods, where she currently serves on the board of directors. So, Leela, Bainham is relatively new to the food space. Um, Can you tell us about the process of food philanthropy philanthropy becoming a part of Bainham's giving portfolio and what that's looked like in the first three years? Yes, absolutely. Thank you, Kiko, for having me as a guest. Um, Thank you also for allowing us to co-produce the series with you. Thank you for being open to it. Yeah, as you mentioned, investment in the food space is a critical need, so we're really excited to, to put a spotlight on the different areas where others can contribute. So as you mentioned, Bainham's relatively new to the food space. About three years ago, we were given a large piece of farmland in Virginia. So we were tasked with looking at this land and figuring out how to operationalize it because we're an operating foundation, which I can explain in a minute, but 
but basically it means that we operate our own programs. So what can we do with this land that made it operational, but also aligned with our mission, which in broad terms is, is helping children and families who are living in poverty to thrive. So an obvious place to look was nutrition. We know, of course, that nutrition is a critical uh, aspect of living a healthy life, succeeding in school and in life and career. So it made sense for us to think about farming since we had farmland. Um, we hired two amazing farmers, Casey Clark and Tanya Taylor. We had them farm five acres to start, so a very small portion of our much bigger property. Um, and we thought, you know, a great place to start was just let's grow uh, some food and let's bring it to the communities that we want to serve, which in particular are Ward 7 and 8 in Washington, D.C. So in Acostia, um, as mentioned, you know, there's uh, a lack of healthy fresh food entering those areas um, at the time. And I think it's similar now, if not maybe worse. There were only two grocery stores serving about 160,000 people compared to two miles away in a higher income ward. There were 11 stores serving about the same population. So we knew there needed to be more um, food getting there. And we thought that we could help with that aspect of the supply problem. Uh, After our first year of growing, we took a little bit of a step back. We felt great about what we had done that first year, but we realized, you know, farming on five acres was not even a drop in the bucket in terms of addressing the need of uh, residents and families living in this area. And so we took a little bit of a step back and said, um, you know, we're participating in the supply chain as an actual grower and distributor, and we're working with great nonprofit partners to get this food where it needs to go. But what are really the underlying issues here? And how can we as a funder think about this more from a systems perspective? And um, not just address the supply problem, but, but you know, look at within the supply problem, what are the issues in the supply chain that we can tackle? Um, what are the issues on the demand side that we can help assist with? How can we bring partners together to collaborate better? So now just, again, we're still pretty new, but three years in, we're taking a much broader kind of look at the food system as a whole, and then using our status as an operating foundation to try to fill gaps where we can, bring people together, and um, still use our farm as a, as a demonstration site, but really just kind of one piece of the solution set that we've developed now. So, um, so yeah, kind of our evolution is to really expand the number of tools in our toolkit that we can use to help address the problem. It's interesting to see how you, how you transitioned. And it does seem like the operating foundation piece is the heart right now. Um, you know, I know that you invest in food nonprofits like DC Greens, the Arcadia Center for Sustainable Food, Community Food Works. Um, can you explain to the listeners what is an operating foundation and um, how does being one influence how you work with those nonprofit partners? Yeah, that's a great question. We're definitely a little bit unique. So uh, in general terms, an operating foundation uh, is a little different than a grant-making foundation. We don't give grants, but we operate the programs that we, um, that we invest in rather than giving that money through a grant to a nonprofit who would operate their own programming. Really, in practical terms, what that comes down to is we still invest in nonprofit organizations and even for-profit um, at times, but we work hand-in-hand. So we have to demonstrate significant involvement with our partners um, to agree kind of above and beyond what a typical grant would necessitate. And uh, what that enables us to do is to really co-design the programming, you know, agree on shared solutions, um, you know, execute the work together and, and sort of evaluate it together. But also because we're so close to the partners in the work and the execution and the implementation of the work, we're kind of 
jointly encountering the issues that they see on a day-to-day basis. And it gives us a unique vantage point as a funder because we also have the resources to address those issues. So um, I think it's really enabled us to tackle some of the the stickier, um, you know, tougher, not front page news type of problems that exist in the system. So things like logistics, transportation, supply chain, you know, those are hard to raise money for. They're abstract concepts, but they're really fundamental to fixing a broken food system. And so it's helped us um, to really see where those issues and those inequities are are arising and, and hopefully direct more capital towards those and then tell other funders about kind of what we're seeing. And your mention of logistics and supply chain brings to mind one of your investments in not a nonprofit, but in a business for P Foods. So, you know, as you as you were saying, you or as we were saying, not, along with investing in nonprofits, you do um, have an area of impact investment in businesses. Can you talk about what that looks like? You know, you've done that with 4P Foods. You've, you've also done that with Good Food Markets. And that's considered a program-related investment um, for you all. So, you know, what is a program-related investment exactly? And how common or uncommon is that for a foundation to do in 2019? Yeah, so it's hopefully becoming more common every day. Uh, A program-related investment is, um, it's really just a financing method that a foundation can use um, to achieve social impact and further their mission. So... By design, it has to be the primary purpose of making a program-related investment has to be for mission outcomes um, related to your tax-exempt purpose. So it cannot be primarily for financial return. So it separates a little bit from other forms of impact investing foundations can make, such as socially responsible investments or mission-related investments. There's a lot of definitions for what all these diff- mean and be a lot of differing views. But but typically, those two come out of uh, a foundation's endowment, and they are intended to generate a market rate return. Program-related investments are not intended or um, to generate market rate return, although they can, as long as the primary reason you're doing it is to achieve social impact and mission-related impact. So um, so not all foundations do it uh, for a variety of reasons. Some of those, you know, operational, it's, you know, making a, a loan or an equity investment or a loan guarantee, um, you know, is very different than giving a traditional grant. So understandably, you know, grant systems aren't necessarily set up internally for foundations to, to kind of execute on those, operationalize those. Um, direct equity investments, as Eric mentioned, you know, are in high need, but, but entrepreneurs are needy. You know, they're, they're in early stage and they need a lot of help and assistance and guidance and, you know, board membership and advocacy and catalytic capital and all these things. So we've made one. And it's been fantastic in terms of the learning we've had and, you know, helping um, Tom, the founder of 4P, really, you know, get this sort of double bottom line focus on both his mission and um, his growth from a for-profit standpoint. But it's time consuming. And so we understand that that's difficult for some foundations. I'd say the vast majority of the capital that I've seen, at least talking to their foundations right now, is going into loans and often through an intermediary like a, a CDFI, which is a community development finance institution. So that helps alleviate a little bit of that um, you know, complexity, as Erica mentioned earlier as well, on the diligence side, on the deal sourcing side, you know, using a trusted intermediary can help you take some of that off your plate and uh, allow foundations to deploy capital towards program-related investments without having to build out a whole team internally. Really helpful. And for listeners who are interested in CDFIs, we're going to be speaking with um, one um, one person who works for a CDFI in the fourth episode of the series. So we could we can learn a little bit more about that. 
Um, Leela, before we move over to Celeste, and then I, I really do welcome you all to chime in together, the, there's one other type of investment Bainham has made that I want to make sure we, we bring to light today, which is not monetary, but it's a resource. It's the Food Learning Locator website that was launched recently. Um, can you talk about how your team decided to allocate resources towards this new site and how it's going so far? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So back when we were doing our research and investigation of where could our foundation best fit into this food landscape, um, you know, we had a farm and that was kind of our approach to tackling the, the supply issue and knowing there needed to be more fresh, healthy food entering Ward 7 and 8 and working with partners to help build that further. Um, but we also wanted to look at the, the demand side of that equation, which is, you know, what kind of education programs are out there, what kind of awareness is there of the community already around um, the programming that's happening. So we did internally really just a, a landscape analysis, talked to different organizations working in the education and training space around food in D.C. and, and in the region. And uh, our intent was really to find what are some gaps that we as a foundation might help fill from an operating perspective. What we found was that there was a wealth of existing programming and organizations doing great work already out in the community. And so we found ourselves quickly the keeper of a treasure trove of information. And we went back to our organizations, almost 16 of them, who initially participated and helped us kind of think through what was out there. What does this landscape map look like? And they said, you have all this data. We would love for you to share it with us. Um, so we talked to them and, and really designed the website out of that. And, you know, it was initially very bootstrapped and a little bit clunky, so we soft-launched it, but we had great initial feedback and traction, so we took it offline for a few months, revamped it. A new enhanced version has just launched. It's much more accessible, it's much more user-friendly, and so we're hoping it'll be a great resource both for partner organizations working in this space, community-based organizations, um, to collaborate, to not duplicate efforts, to recognize all the program sites that are already there. Um, and also hopefully for community members to go and find resources where they can access job training, farmer training, food entrepreneurship training, um, and really just, just learning about the food space in D.C. Is it navigated as a, like a Google Map type platform or is it more like a list database or what does it look like? There's a variety of ways to view it and access it. So yes, there's a map feature, which is probably the most helpful because you just get a visual of everything happening in the region. Um, as you mentioned earlier, there's, you know, over a hundred, I mean, I think hundreds now of program sites listed over 60 organizations have participated. So it's really an amazing visual, but there's also options to filter, see lists, you know, dive deeper into a single organization, learn about their mission, get a link to their website. And again, this new version also makes it very easy for organizations to go in themselves and update data. So it's staying relevant and fresh so that um, it'll hopefully live and be a living document and eventually even get transferred to the community at some point. Obviously, Bainham's committed to funding the back end and the infrastructure as a platform, but we want this to feel like a, a living, breathing resource. That's great. I was going to ask if listeners are tuning in and they go to foodlearninglocator.org and they don't see their organization, how can they get it on there? Sounds like it's as easy as adding it to the, the site themselves. Exactly. Just go on to foodlearninglocator.org. There's an easy button to click. Um, send us feedback. Add your organization. We'll do a quick review of the organization before we post it just to make sure everything's correct and we have everything we need. And very quickly, you're up on the site and participating with us. Sweet. Congratulations. Thanks. We're so excited. Building a website is no small feat, <laughs> yes. especially a database. Um, so, 
let's move over to Celeste. And one of the investment types that Eric, you mentioned was corporate investors. And you mentioned, you know, some huge corporate investors these days are building their own kind of giving arm, you know, Kraft, Heinz, General Mills, um, Campbell Soup are all doing this. And we're lucky to have Celeste with us to to talk about how she guides Kaiser Permanente's work, channeling resources towards addressing systemic health issues in this area. Uh, Celeste is the executive director of community health here in in the Mid-Atlantic for Kaiser Permanente. She oversees programming, grant making, and policy advocacy to create conditions that promote optimal health and life opportunity for all. And in addition to her service on the Maryland Community Health Resources Commission, Celeste serves as co-chair of the Washington Regional Food Funders, which we mentioned. She sits on the board of Crittenton Services of Greater Washington. And last year, she was appointed to Governor Larry Hogan's, or she was appointed by Governor Larry Hogan's office to serve as a commissioner on the Maryland Community Health Resources Commission, which has awarded over $63 million in grants over 13 years. Celeste, you've been with Kaiser Permanente for 12 years, I believe. Um, have you always been involved with the corporation's philanthropic funding work or not always? Yes, I have been. I have been leading um, Kaiser Permanente's uh, work to address what we call upstream conditions related to um, health and well-being. So Kaiser Permanente is um, the nation's leading healthcare delivery system or healthcare system. We are a combination of care and coverage. Uh, we provide care and, um, and health insurance to about 12 million members across the country. Uh, here in this mid-Atlantic states where, where I am, we serve about 800,000 members, um, providing them with medical care in 30 medical centers. And we know as um, a leading health system that health is so much more than what happens in a doctor's office and that health is really driven by the conditions in our communities and a big part of that is food. So uh, Kaiser Permanente is a mission-driven organization. We invest um, millions of dollars to support community health, again recognizing that um, our work, our excellent health care in our medical centers is limited if we are not also addressing the conditions that drive health beyond our four walls. So um, I've been excited and, and very pleased to be part of an organization that gets that, number one, and that is willing to invest in um, long-term systemic and sustainable change to improve health conditions for all. And I have to say, I, I was a Kaiser Permanente, I guess, client would be the right word. For, member. Member for mm -hmm. many years. and. Though there were there were always nudges in the in the in the medical offices towards healthy eating towards movement, um, so they have gotten that for a long time because that, that was a few years back. Drive breaks and drive breaks. We're about prevention. Yeah, it's a strong <laughs> brand culture. That's right. You've written that your zip quote your zip code is a stronger predictor of your health and lifespan than your genetic code. End right. quote. Can you give us an example from your work with Kaiser Permanente about the kind of environments you are trying to create that will promote equitable health and well-being? Absolutely. So um, at Kaiser Permanente, we have this um, ambitious vision to uh, make Kaiser Permanente communities the healthiest in the nation and to inspire greater health across the world. And that really means that um, when we think about the conditions that, uh, that shape health, 
we think about things like food, what are called food deserts, which is neighborhoods that do not have access to food within a certain um, mileage. It's usually, I think, about two miles um, from where one is living. And um, food deserts, it's a bit of a misnomer. Um, deserts are natural. Food deserts are not. Uh, food deserts are extremely preventable. Um, yet we are faced with this um, issue of hundreds, millions, thousands of people who are living in um, areas that don't have access to healthy food. And on top of that, not only don't have access to healthy food, but they have, um, um, they have large amounts of fast foods and other things that, are, that, work, that conspire against health, basically. So um, what I would say is that in the work that we do, our, we have a vision for health, equity, and justice. And a big part of that is recognizing that health disparities are created by health inequities and by, in, in, um, and, and by lack of access to um, the opportunities to be healthy and well, essentially. And what's an example of an investment that you've made to kind of attack that problem? So for many years, we've invested in um, increasing food access in neighborhoods through farmers markets and urban farms and healthy corner stores. We have invested in, um, in food banks as well. I mean, food banks is um, maybe a, a natural place to think about um, where people get their food, but we'd like to think that people can buy food in their neighborhoods that is healthy as well. So we've been working with organizations like DC Central Kitchen um, to make sure that corner stores have healthy options. Uh, we have um, invested in um, many community gardens and increasingly we've been looking at food jobs and food entrepreneurship. And so it going even beyond um, what one might think of a healthcare organization to really address the, um, again, upstream conditions which are um, ensuring that people have economic opportunity, and a big part of that is food. Absolutely. Another very um, well-written thing that you said that I that I saw in an interview you did for the recent Foodport report mm -hmm. um, is that you wrote, quote, a great deal of any of our commitments to equity is having the right people, not just at the table, but able to lead the table. And so looping back to leading the table with the Washington Regional Food Funders Group. Um, I just want to, I would like to hear about how you've used that leadership seat and um, what kind of work you're trying to guide the food funders towards um, prioritizing. Sure, sure. So when, um, maybe a decade or more ago, maybe 15 years ago, um, Kaiser Permanente um, pioneered this idea of farmers markets at our medical centers. So we started from way back thinking about food as medicine and um, recognizing that we could use our influence to help people to make the right choices. Um, we could also use our influence to change the environmental conditions that enable people to make the right choices. So in kind of putting on that, that lens or that, that frame of reference about our organization as a large um, major corporation, we began to think, how can we continue to use our influence, not only our dollars. Um, we have, um, we invest, um, uh, in the last five years, we've invested over $500 million in community health. So again, outside of our medical centers, investing in healthcare access, but really access to opportunity. And so, um, um, 
Because we are, again, a large corporation and one that is well known for prevention, health, health and prevention, and um, creating conditions for people to thrive, uh, when we were approached with this idea of convening other funders to uh, leverage our resources, leverage our influence to bring attention to the food systems issue, and then um, hopefully bring resources, private resources, government resources, and now increasingly under the um, great um, facilitation of Arabella Advisors, um, investors, social impact investors and others, um, we thought that, that it was a great opportunity. It was a great opportunity and it was time. You know, we've been working for the past 10, 12 years on this issue, and um, while we have seen some great changes, and some of which Layla has, 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 um, has laid out, some great um, initiatives and projects and food hubs and farms, urban farms and the like, there is still a, a lingering um, systemic problem in our food system that does not enable everybody in every community to have access to good, healthy food. So to the extent that we as funders can broaden that tent and make one, um, everybody understand that these conditions don't have to exist, and then um, uh, invite uh, funding and other kinds of resources in to help fix the problem, from you know production, food production, all the way to food distribution. That's what we think that we can use our influence to do, and that's what we've been working on with the food funders um, for the past ten years or so. And so, to just get you know perspectives from all of you on kind of what you're talking about, Celeste, which is just choosing the right priorities. Um, it, it seems like it's really challenging for food interested investors to identify the right. Um, the right investment opportunities and the whole range of, you know, quote, problems in our food system. How do, how does Bainham, how does Kaiser Permanente, you know, how do you guide clients to, you know, consider the competing priorities and, um, you know, consider the competing, you know, balance of returns versus impact as well? Anyone can chime in on this. Um, well, I would say um, it, 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 the, the first is that there's so much opportunity in so many different parts of the food system that you really can't go wrong. And you're, you're going to be the best investor when you're investing in um, whatever it is you care most about. Now, we can say that, uh, and we should say, that there's certainly um, uh, a, a, a real lack of capital available to women entrepreneurs in the food sector, to people of color in the food sector. Um, uh, and, and, and I hope that we would all focus on that. But some people may just really care about plant-based alternative foods. And if that's your thing, find the, find the product, find the company, find the entrepreneur and do that. Um, uh, you may really care about um, sustainable agriculture and its impact on climate change. Um, you should focus on, 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 on your passion. I think, though, as you get into investing in the food sector, um, uh, regardless of your initial passion, you start to learn a couple of things, and naturally your interest starts to expand, which is you realize that um, uh, none of the food companies exist without a strong culture um, for good food and a strong demand for good food. Um, uh, that has been growing in America um, for some time. At this point, demand actually outstrips the supply of good food, but nonetheless, 
as you uh, support uh, um, entrepreneurs in the sector, you realize that you know the, there, there's always a need for more demand. Um, you also start to realize that um, in most cases, most food businesses, whether it's a supply chain company, a technology company, a restaurant, a food access uh, a company that focuses on food access, um, they all rely on a policy environment that enables them to take root. And whether those policies are municipal poli- policies or state policies or federal policies, and so inevitably we see an investor who comes in with a particular interest in a particular part of the food world. Um, at some point they realize, aha, there's a- we actually need to engage in philanthropy alongside our investments to um, support advocacy that enables our investments um, uh, to take root. We, I like to say that you know, there's a lot of bad policies standing in the way of good food investment returns. And so um, start with where your interests are, um, uh, 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 do the research, ask lots of questions, and be open to your horizons expanding as you learn more about the fact that it's all interrelated. It is a system. Um, and so you may be interested in sustainable agriculture and climate change, but you also need, but if, if you're going to pursue that interest, you also have to think about entrepreneurs of color. You have to think about policy change. You have to think about um, uh, uh, consumer products and, and everything in between. Slight tangent, because it looks like Leela or Celeste might want to add, but what does it look like to ask a, a, an investor to get involved with policy and advocacy? You know, that, is that what they're really in the game for? Um, s- s- some absolutely are from the get-go. Um, and, and you're right in sort of um, hinting at that most are not. Um, when, when I advise clients, um, I'm, I'm pretty transparent about my biases, which is um, uh, th- there's three ingredients for a good food, for a good food system. One is um, a culture of demand. Um, uh, two is um, infrastructure and the investments that we make. And third is policy. And so I, if I preach about anything, um, it is that um, you ha- you, the, the best investors are also philanthropists, and the best philanthropists are also investors. Not everybody takes me up on that, but I certainly don't shy away from encouraging that perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to build on that side there, uh, Bainham's work, the way that we execute our work is is divided into practice policy and research. So we similarly see policy as a mechanism of achieving sustainability, right? So even if you build and demonstrate a pilot that's great, you know, replication can get hard as soon as you encounter some of these obstacles that often do come down to policy. So, um, you know, advocacy uh, can get tricky for foundations, but there's a way to do it um, right. And and we also believe that it's it's critical to moving that forward. Uh, Another just piece on the investor side, um, from the foundation perspective, you know, I personally believe that uh, it's the work of foundations to take bigger risks on, um, on to move the whole sector forward, right? So if you look at history, right, um, taking bigger risks um, is really the germination of innovation and progress. So I think everyone's at a different place on that risk spectrum, and you have to know yourself. And if you're in a, a funder perspective, know the, the appetite of your trustees, your board, your leadership, of course. But... Um, I think, you know, when you're in uh, when your primary mechanism of uh, doing philanthropy is a grant where you expect no money in return, really, um, when you compare that with, you know, the potential of a program related investment or or an impact investment where you you can generate that return, you know, you you have to look at your pool of capital almost as one singular singular pool. And how do you maximize social impact with that entire corpus of capital? So, you know, the Bain Foundation is is making steps towards that. We have 10 percent of our of our endowment allocated 
allocated towards impact investment right now. Our program-related investments are coming out of our operating funds. So again, those are, you know, competing is not the right word, but those are part of our um, of our philanthropic giving portfolio and our investment sort of program-related investment and service agreements. Um, but I do think that that we need more um, we need more funders to to be comfortable in that space and, and kind of redefine this idea of risk because. Again, we're comfortable giving away money and not expecting it in return. So, so it's not a zero-sum game. And I think that the, the entrepreneurs getting into the space now, the generation of millennials, they don't see these things in binary terms. You can have both social impact and financial return, and that's a way towards sustainability as well. So, um, so I think that the whole funding landscape has really just really changed over the last 10 years. When we started in this work, there were just really foundations, foundations who were focused on these issues. And foundations have limited resources. So um, as we, as we, as the, as the issue gets bigger, number one, as awareness of the issue increases, um, recognition that um, there's been a recognition that foundations are not the only solution, and they can't be. So just as healthcare is not the only solution to improving health, um, foundations cannot be the only backers of changing a food system. So um, I think that, um, that what we've been trying to do is to show by, through our investments, and I, when I say we, I don't just mean Kaiser Permanente, but Washington Regional Food Funders and other foundations, we've been um, trying to um, uh, show by our investments how we can invest in the food system, again, from food banks all the way up to um, food hubs and, and beyond and whatever other innovation is coming our way. Um, but we, we, we want to be able to um, keep this conversation going so that um, people understand that there is a way to invest for returns that are of great value to our communities and, and of great value to the investors. Um, Kaiser Permanente as well has begun to do some social impact investing. Now at this time we're not in investing in food, we're investing in housing. But we are looking at ways to invest in supportive housing, which means housing that includes wraparound services, some of which will be food. And so um, again, being creative, being thoughtful about what's necessary, understanding the breadth of this problem, and um, recognizing that the influence that we can, that we can have by being innovative and widening the tent and ensuring and, and recognizing everybody has a place to, um, to, to stand and to sit in this, um, in this big challenging fight. And speaking of everyone having a place, <laughs> our <laughs> listeners have a place. And this is the moment in the show where my three esteemed guests, guests have an opportunity to invite listeners to do one thing or change one thing in our day to day that will improve the food system in, in any way that you think it needs to be improved. So, Celeste, since you have the mic right now, why don't you sure. kick us off? Well, I would say um, if I was to give one piece of advice, it's to notice, to be aware. As you're walking, as what, D.C. has become a very walkable city, as you're walking around D.C. or any other major metro, metropolitan city, notice what exists in the neighborhood and what doesn't. And a neighborhood that doesn't have a grocery store is wrong. It, it should not exist. So notice those things and ask yourself why. And then as you're asking yourself why, ask what can I do? And it really is checking in, checking in with your school system, checking in with your business um, community, checking in with your elected officials and asking why and what can we do? 
I love it. Leela? I would say, um, you know, buy local, right? But we hear that all the time. And I think what I mean by that really is you vote with your dollars. And so every day you make active choices to vote with those dollars. So as best you can, seek out local-owned businesses, ideally businesses that are employing and training members of the community and uh, trying to build and, and retain that wealth in the community. I think that's the only way we get towards a, a tipping point on the, the economic development standpoint, as, as Celeste was mentioning. These are great because they're, they're applicable for listeners wherever you are in the country. Eric. You know, I would say um, support a food entrepreneur. Um, uh, and we can all support them in different ways, regardless of our, our resources and ability. There's, there's a, we all have an ability to support good food entrepreneurs. You could, and whether that entrepreneur is a farmer or somebody coming up with a new food product um, or an entrepreneur that um, wants to win the contract for the school food um, uh, and everything in between. Um, uh, and we can support them by buying their products. We can support them by questioning grocers why they aren't why they don't hold those products. We can question our um, school system why they aren't um, uh, giving those contracts to um, to food entrepreneurs and locally owned businesses. Um, we can invest in food entrepreneurs for those that have means. We can advocate for policies that enable food entrepreneurs to be successful. Um, so think about the entrepreneurial nature. Um, uh, uh, most good things happening in the food system right now um, uh, are being led by smart new thinkers in the field. So you're not one of those people that thinks entrepreneurism is overhyped. Uh, I don't think it's overhyped. I don't think it's a be-all, end-all, and I think that there's a role for big players in the field for sure. But um, uh, but innovation is starting where uh, where it always does, which is um, with uh, um, uh, fresh thinking. Absolutely. Eric, Leela, Celeste, I, I, I really appreciate what you've offered today because I, I imagine most of our listeners don't work at an organization that's investing directly or, you know, advising investment in the food system. Um, so the insights that you've shared will really help us all kind of with a framework as we venture into the next three episodes of our Investing in Food series. Can you quickly tell listeners where they can follow you online before we have to sign off? Eric, go ahead. Uh, Twitter is Eric Arabella. Okay. Find us at BainumFDN.org. And I'm Celeste James 33 or at KP Mid-Atlantic. Great. In next week's episode, Leela's colleague Katie Jones, who's director of the Bainum Family Foundation's Food Security Initiative, and I will be in conversation with Chris Bradshaw of Dreaming Out Loud and Tom McDougall of 4P Foods about how both for-profit and non-profit organizations are using funding to address inequities and gaps in the local D.C. foodscape. There will be a lot of voices in the room, and we hope you'll join us. Until then, thanks a lot for tuning in today, and uh, have a good one. Tune in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service.